If you'd like to borrow a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? I'm glad that you got the nine o'clock memo that you are here. Uh, it's a lot. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot to ask. Uh, you know, the time changes, the service time changes. Uh, a lot of the students are, are away on retreats. I think one campus retreat got back yesterday. There's one that's still not back yet. I'm not quite sure what else is going on. So. People are all over the place today, but I'm glad that you are here. And I hope you can be with us on Friday night as we do Secret Church, six hours of being in the Word of God, talking about spiritual warfare, angels and demons. It's going to be a good time. This Friday, starting at 7, we'll end around 1 a.m. in the morning. It's going to be great. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi. We preach through books of the Bible, and we've been preaching through the book of Malachi. It is the last book of the Old Testament, and we are going to be finishing the book of Malachi today, looking at the very last words of Malachi and the very last words of the Old Testament. So if you ever wanted to know how the Old Testament ends, well, here you go. And, and what's interesting about this passage today, it is, it's complex. It's, it's more dense than what we're used to. On, on Sunday mornings, and so this morning is going to be pretty heavy in the teaching realm. Not only did you have to get up at 9, but you have to deal with some, some heavy stuff here for this uh, early service. But to cut through it all, to keep it simple, in case you drift out throughout, here is the basic gist and message of this passage, and it goes like this. There is a day of judgment coming, and everyone... Now, everyone in here, everyone in the world, will either receive salvation or wrath. That's the basic gist of the passage. And for those of you who believe, it will be shown on the day of judgment that your faith was not in vain. Believing, following Christ, not pointless. That will be shown for sure on the day of judgment. So let's all stand and finish up the Old Testament finish up the book of Malachi. We're in Malachi chapter, chapter 3. We're going to start in chapter 3 with verse 13. Let me read. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man who spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers 
will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You may be seated. What a way to end a book. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction, and they lived happily ever after. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? And we have the book in this way. We have the whole Old Testament end on a note of wrath. But what we will see is it's actually an opportunity for mercy. And it's all within the context of the six disputation. We've been going through these six disputations where God is calling out his people, Israel, to repent on specific issues. The people challenge him. And then God speaks the truth to them in these disputations. And here we have the sixth disputation where the Lord is charging his people with their offensive words against him. Let's start in verse 13. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. The hard words that they've been speaking against the Lord is a hard attitude that says, it is vain to serve God. It is pointless to serve God. There is no profit and benefit in serving him. Look at the elaboration in verse 14 and 15. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They say, you know what? We keep his commands, but what's the point? We, we walk before him in repentance, but it's in vain. We cry out in our suffering, but he's not listening. Because you know what? The rain still does not come on our withered crops. We're still marginalized in the vast Persian empire. We're surrounded by our enemies who are prospering while we are languishing. Not only does God not care or notice us, but he blesses our enemies and he lets them get away with great amounts of evil. God does not care. God does not see us. To serve him is in vain. Words like these are often spoken by hypocrites. And that's what the Israelites are. They are hypocrites. They're saying their problems are all because of God. But the reality is they are steeped in so much sin. If you've been paying attention to the book of Malachi, 
God starts by calling them out on their cheap worship. They would bring these blemished animals that were lame and blind and offer them up. God didn't want that. Not only that, but they were steeped in sexual immorality as they were divorcing their wives, marrying pagan women, or not even considering marrying an Israelite woman, just going right after marrying the unbeliever. And they were cheap in their giving and their tithes and offering. They were not giving in their tithes and offering to the Lord. And all the while, they said, God, it is your fault that we are languishing here. It is your fault. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on anybody here, and I'm not saying all of you, but some of you in here, you're just like them. You're just like them. You, you have all these problems in your life, and you don't understand why there's so much wrong in your life while you were so religious. You go to church. Maybe occasionally you read the Bible. Maybe you put some money in the offering. You go through the religious motions, and yet your life's a mess. Could it be that you are just a hypocrite? You're blaming other people for your problems. You're blaming God for your problems. But the reality is you should blame yourself for your problems because you are steeped in sin, and your heart is far from God. Have you ever spoken to someone, and they're telling you how their life is falling apart, and they're blaming other people, and they're blaming God. And when you're listening to them, you're thinking to yourself, dude, it's you. You're the problem. And if that's the way you exist, by kind of blame shifting all your problems onto other people or onto God, I just want you to know that there is a better way to live. There is such a better way to live. You don't want to go throughout your life constantly blaming other people. It's a terrible way to live. And the better way, I think, is seen in verse 16. Praise God for verse 16. You think that no one's following the Lord, but look at verse 16. Then those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. Oh, there seems to be this group of God-fears. They are a, a godly remnant. They're, they're a small group of people, and they, they still wanted to know and follow the Lord. And this verse 16 says, they spoke with one another. Like, well, what do they talk about? Well, their conversation likely centered around Malachi's message and their response to the message. Basically, this godly remnant are, are actually responding to what he's saying. Sometimes you wonder if people are ever going to re repent in, in the minor prophets. Sometimes you wonder if people are ever going to change. But this, this godly group, it seems like what, what they've done. They've heard Malachi's message and, and they started owning their stuff. They said, yep, we're guilty. We've been bringing cheap sacrifices. Yep, we're guilty. We've been involved with sexual immorality. Yep, we're guilty. We've been cutting God off in our tithes and offerings. Yep, we're guilty. So they're, they're repenting, and they're, they're, they're encouraging one another, and they're standing out from this corrupt generation. And, and that's what the church should be. It should be uh, this remnant of people that stand out from a corrupt generation, from, from a country that we live in that confesses that they are a Christian country. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> you walk around and your friends tell you they're Christians, but there's nothing in their lives that show they're Christians. There, there is always going to be this godly remnant that stands out, a people of God, is remnant, who are, who are set aside and 
by God's grace, that's going to be our church. By God's grace, when you go to your ethos communities and you start to speak to one another and you encourage one another and you say, man, I was getting slammed this week at school. I was getting slammed this week at work. Things are just falling apart in my life. You look at one another in the eye and you say, look, it is not in vain. Serving the Lord is not in vain. Hang on. I want to encourage you, go to your groups, go to your groups, get in each other's faces, encourage one another. It is not in vain. Be like this godly remnant. And I love what it says next. Look, the Lord pays attention. Look at verse 16. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So this remnant's over there talking with one another, repenting together, and they were written in something called a book of remembrance. So in the, in the Persian Empire, they would have these uh, royal diaries where significant people and significant events were recorded. And the imagery here is the Lord looking at this remnant and capturing them in his book, capturing their hearts, putting them down. He's acknowledging them. Those people fear my name. Those people bring fame to my name and their repentance, and they're coming back to me. You see, sometimes when we serve the Lord, we wonder, does anyone notice? Does anyone care? And, and God says, I am capturing that. I am noticing you. It is not in vain. God takes notice of this godly remnant. And in this special day, if you look at verse 17, it says, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I'm going to spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. So now we're going to have this, this concept of this day or a day of the Lord, I have this theme running through until the very end of chapter 4. And the day of the Lord simply means this. It's a time where God intervenes. And when the day of the Lord comes, it's either an inter intervention for salvation for some and an intervention of wrath for others. And throughout the history of the Old Testament, you will see the day of the Lord. You'll see God intervening to bring judgment and salvation. And in our context here, it's talking about he's going to spare those who serve him like a son who serves his father. But we're also going to see that when the Lord intervenes on the day of his judgment and salvation, there's going to be a separation between the wicked, you see that, between the righteous and the wicked, between those who esteemed his name and those who did not esteem his name. So when the day of the Lord comes and the Lord intervenes, it doesn't matter what your friends thought, doesn't matter what other people said about you. None of that stuff matters. All that's going to matter is how God views you. Does he view you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ? It's going to be about God's view, God's opinion of you, not others. Think about the very end of Psalm chapter 1. Many of you maybe have memorized this at one time. Psalm 1, verse 5 and 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
So now we kind of live in this time like the Israelites where there is a blending of the righteous and the wicked. But the day of the Lord's intervention will reveal a distinction. So let's, as we jump into chapter 4, we're kind of ready for this theme of the day of the Lord. And this is where it gets kind of tough. And this is, this, is, this, is, this is some serious stuff here. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Over the summer, I was memorizing this verse on a beautiful day down by the lake here in Evanston. I mean, there are people out there swimming in the lake, riding their bikes, and you got moms pushing babies along the path. I'm telling you, it was a beautiful day. And, I, and I'm going along, and I'm memorizing this verse. And I keep saying it in my head over and over again. The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze. And it was such a conflicting scene. I mean, beautiful day, day of judgment, wrath, and fire. And, and as I'm going along, I'm thinking, no one's going to believe me if I said, do you know the day is coming for wrath and fire and judgment? They're like, man, what's your problem? Just enjoy the day. It's beautiful out. And I'm, and I'm going along, and I just can't believe how, how, how different it is, what's going to come and what it looks like. It's beautiful out there. And so I'm going along, and I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm torn. I really am just messed up this day, memorizing this verse. And so I'm coming along, and, and I see this guy. He's, a, he's in his late 20s, and, and he's Jewish. And I, I don't usually talk to people when I'm out by the lake or anything like that, but I couldn't stand it. So I go up to this guy, and I, and I got my scriptures right here. I said, are you Jewish? He said, yeah, I'm Jewish. All right, okay, great. Hey, I'm reading the Hebrew scripture right now. Malachi, you know it, right? Malachi, yeah, I know Malachi. I said, look at this verse. Look at it. What, what, what is this? What does that mean? He says, it's the end of days. I said, but how do you interpret this when you just look out? Look how beautiful it is. And look, look where we're headed. I said, how do you interpret that? And he said, well, look, there's two interpretations. He said, one interpretation is the world is going to get worse and worse and worse, and God is going to come with fiery wrath judgment. And he said, but the other interpretation is human beings can make the world a better place in peace, and God is going to come in peace. And he was opting for the peace interpretation. And so what is the right interpretation? Well, I think the right interpretation is when God comes in judgment, it will not be wrath for all, and it will not be peace for all. When God comes, there will be wrath for some and peace for some. 
And in this passage right here in verse 1, we're looking at the wrath portion when he comes and you look what he's going to do to the arrogant and the wicked that are going to be like stubble. And you know stubble's going to be easily ignited. They're going to be consumed with fire uh, so that there's nothing left. Look, it says neither root nor branch. And we know that this day of judgment and of fire will be coming in the end of days, the end of time when Jesus comes back a second time. And throughout history, God has been having his judgment play out in many ways leading up to this great and a big day of judgment. You can think about the Israelites. They were judged in a variety of ways through the Babylonian captivity. That, that later on, they had, had a locust plague of God's judgment. But all this is leading up to the great day of the Lord around the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ comes back, we will see if it was vain to serve the Lord or not. The world will see. It will be shown. And when you're in church and you start hearing these passages about judgment and fire and you're a believer, you shouldn't think, oh, no, God's going to get me. No, when you start hearing passages about judgment and fire and wrath, you should view it as as your day of your vindication, the day of your, in a sense, your salvation. It should be such a joyous time, because I don't know about you, but it is hard in this fallen world of suffering to hang on by the grace of God and keep following Jesus Christ. There is a day of vindication. So this be, should be encouragement for you as believers. And in fact, Malachi writes it that way. Look what he says in verse 2. This should encourage you. But for you who fear my name, it's the godly remnant, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So when Christ comes back a second time, all those who've been longing for his coming will be vindicated. You'll be affirmed that it was not in vain. And then you see the imagery of the son of righteousness that just shows you that there is a new day dawning. It's a day that brings healing from all the wicked that has been done to believers, and the effects of sin will be no more. It's like the longing of the Old Testament believers, in a sense, is the longing of New Testament believers. We're longing for that day where righteousness will reign. And when that day comes, we're going to be like calves bursting from the stall with, with such joy. And, and that day has dawned. One of the most complex things to explain is that when you read the Minor Prophets, they're talking about a future day. And when they talk about a future day, it kind of all just blends together with the first and second coming of Jesus. We see the distinction. And so, yes, there is a bursting forth of joy now like calves from the stall because Christ has come. Christ has brought healing in his wings and forgiven us of our sins through his death and his resurrection. But there is still a future day, a future longing. And we know that Malachi is not just talking about the first coming of Jesus because he has it surrounded with all this fire and wrath terminology. And, and even look at verse 3. What do you do with verse 3? And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. <laughs> it's not that the righteous is supposed to go out and hunt, hunt the wicked down and then cut them down. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when the day of fire and wrath comes, that the wicked, they're going to be burned up in the 
fire. I mean, this is, this is dramatic imagery. And now the evil dead are under the soles of the feet of the righteous. And it doesn't mean that they are annihilated forever. It just means that they are separated from the Lord and his people. And I just want to be very clear to make sure that everybody understands this. It's, this will for sure happen. I know you're going to walk out here today, and it is so beautiful today. It's beautiful. Go by the lake. Oh, it's beautiful. But this will for sure happen. All those who repent of their sins, put their faith in Jesus Christ, will be forgiven. The Son of Righteousness will rise. Healing will be healed. We are healed of our sins and one day when Christ comes back or we meet him when we die, we'll be accepted and loved, not because we're good people, because we're not good people, but because he is righteous, clothes us in his righteousness. But the flip side is also true. All those who do not repent, who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ, will face his fiery wrath in hell forever and at this moment this is not something that we rejoice at it's something we spread out among the nations and we tell others about jesus christ so they can avoid the fiery wrath of god it's a message of grace that you can receive forgiveness you can avoid the wrath of god through jesus christ it's a message of grace and repentance and forgiveness repent and be reconciled to God. And Malachi, he ends on that note of grace and repentance. Look at verse 4. Look at the call to return. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Remember the way he put it back in... Uh, 3, 7, he said, return to me and I'll return to you. Well, now he's saying return to the law. Come back to the word of God. Come back to his truth. Remember the law of my servant Moses like you did at Horeb. Remember at Horeb when the nation was gathered at the mountain? They all said, yeah, we're in. We're going to follow the Lord. And then the, the nation rebelled. And he said, come on back. Come on back to the law. I know that you strayed, but now come on back. He's, he's going to be coming in judgment. Now you come on back. And as believers await the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, there, there are ways that we live in holiness and righteousness now in, in a, giving attention to the word of God, not because our obedience saves us, it's because we want to live holy like our Lord is holy. And then a wonderful verse and yet complex in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. Look back at 3.1 again. Remember back at 3.1, we see this messenger was coming. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. We were getting into the details there on how that, that Elijah-like prophet, that messenger that prepared the way for the Lord, we understood that that was uh, John the Baptist. We saw that when we turned to Matthew. We already spent time doing that. So, I think this messenger here, this Elijah to come, this Elijah-like prophet, is John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. But if you start reading through Matthew, it's interesting that uh, on the top of the mountain of transfiguration, when Jesus is up there with some of his disciples, remember the two figures that were with him on the top of the mountain. It was Moses 
and Elijah. And when they're coming back down the mountain, they're like, Jesus, kind of give us the scoop. We, we thought Elijah was going to come, and Jesus indicates, yeah, he did come. It was John the Baptist. But Jesus also made this statement when he said that when Elijah does come, he is going to restore all things. So I, I, when, I, when I think about this Elijah terminology and John the Baptist and how that plays out in the New Testament, there are times that I scratch my head because I get, I get kind of confused. I'm not very smart in figuring this out. But I think it is true, for sure, we can say that Elijah, uh, that John the Baptist was the expected new Elijah. But let me just say this, not to throw you off, but there seems to be another figure another Elijah-like figure, or maybe even Elijah himself, coming before the second coming of Jesus. If you read Revelation 11, we're not going to read it now, but there are these two witnesses that show up in Revelation 11 prophesying to the people before the second return of Jesus. And when you read it, you look at one of the witnesses and you go, hmm, I wonder if that's Elijah or another Elijah-like figure. And this is a lot of stuff you can sort out later. It's very challenging. But no matter how you sort all this out, whether it's the prophesying done by the Elijah John the Baptist before the coming of Jesus the first time, or whether this is Elijah, the future Elijah, and one of the witnesses before the second coming of Jesus, keep in mind this. The message, in a sense, is the same. And the message is this. Repent. Repent. Repent means turn from your sin and alter your life. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. People always wonder, are you, are you saved? Uh, do you need to repent or put your faith? Yes, it's the same. Repenting and believing, a repentant faith. Turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And the opportunity we're seeing here at the end of Malachi as we're projecting toward the coming of Christ is this message of getting ready, of, of repentance. It's a message of mercy. Look at the work of this Elijah-like figure in verse 6. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So does the book end on a note of judgment or does the book end on a note of grace? Well, look at it there. It says there seems to be a way of escape. This Elijah figure is going to come and he's going to work reconciliation. Obviously, it seems like societal reconciliation. We have the hearts of fathers and children being turned to each other. But we know this also begins with God working in our own own hearts and this divine reconciliation with him. Let me show you some, something from uh, the book of Luke. This is said of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children, this is John the Baptist, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. That's that reconcile with God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So the message of the forerunner, John the Baptist, was a message of grace. You can return. You can find favor through repentance. You don't have to face the wrath of God. But if there is no 
turning. If there is no repentance, then the book of Malachi ends on a very dire note. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So yes, the Old Testament ends on a note of judgment. It also ends on an opportunity for mercy. When that day comes, it will be a day of salvation for those who repent and believe in Christ. It will be a day of judgment those who spurn his grace and spit in his face. And the message that the believers proclaim today is now is the day of salvation. We tell our friends, we tell those in our family, now is the day of salvation. It's an opportunity for mercy. It's an opportunity for forgiveness, opportunity for grace now. When Christ comes back or when you face him at your death and judgment and you have spurned his grace, you should not stand before him and say, I had no opportunity. That will not be true. If you're, in, if you're not a believer and you stand before judgment one day, not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you cannot say you did not have an opportunity to turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are here right now, yet not a Christian, the opportunity to repent of your sins, put your faith in Jesus Christ, is right now. Now is the day of salvation. But for those of us who believe, those of the godly remnant in here this morning, we're in the same place as those there in the time of Malachi. We're dealing with some of the similar issues, and I want to ask a series of questions. It goes like this. Same stuff they dealt with. Is it vain to serve God in light of his coming judgment? No, it's not. Is it vain to go all out in obedience to his commands? No. Is it vain to maintain purity in singleness and faithfulness in marriage? No. Is it in vain to leverage your money for the kingdom? No, it's not. Is it in vain to trust the Lord when every earthly indicator is shouting in your face that you are wasting your life? No. It is not vain to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are tired and worn out, for those of you who are waiting, uh, are thinking about quitting, those of you who are thinking about giving up and following Christ, do not quit. It is not in vain. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Following the Lord is not pointless. I know it's hard now, but there is a day coming of salvation, vindication, and great joy. And since we just finished up the Old Testament on a point of, of grace, of opportunity to repent, I'm going to leave you here this morning on a, on a different way. I'm going to leave you with the close of the New Testament. I'm going to read to you the very end of the New Testament from the book Revelation. Once again, an opportunity to repent before the great day of the Lord. So let me put this up for you. This is Revelation chapter 22. Listen to the words of Jesus. Behold, I am coming soon. 
bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that's wash their robes in the blood of Jesus, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. God, we praise you that you are Father of grace who has made a way for us to be reconciled to you through Jesus. We can never, ever accuse you of wrongdoing or injustice. In your infinite love and grace, you've made provision for everyone in here to know you to the sending of your Son to die on the cross for their sins, to reconcile them through repentance and faith through the finished work of Christ to you. For those in here who do not know you, Lord, stir them up today. Convict them. May may it, it nag them all day with conviction to be reconciled to you. Awaken them in their hearts and their minds. Awaken them to know you. And for those of us in here who are believers who are struggling, who are just fighting and suffering, in a sense, every day in a variety of ways, with a great amount of evil coming at us, I ask, Lord, that you would persevere us in our faith by your grace, by your mercy. May we press on toward the prize of Jesus, knowing that there is a future reward, a future vindication. And we are asking, Lord Jesus, that you would come back soon, that you would come back quickly, that you would come back. We want to see you face to face. And until then, Lord, we know that you're holding on to us. May we continue to continue to return to you and enjoy you. In Christ's name, amen.